you be seated, please. Let's turn together, please, in our Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17, 23. think that it would be better if we begin with verse 16 as we read this heart-warming, thrilling passage of Scripture. John 17, beginning with verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As you did send me into the world, even so send I them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Neither for these only do I pray but for them also that believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected into one, that the world may know that you did send me, and love them, even as you loved me. And then turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses. Beginning with Philippians 2, verse 1. If there is, therefore, any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassion, make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of the same or of one mind, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, 
but each of you also to the things of others. Again, please join me as we pray together. Our Father, who made us, who is in control of all our cells and genes and makeup and all the events of history, who accomplishes all your will and pleasure in heaven and on earth. Come now, O Lord, and take these feeble means that you've appointed and make the matters of the truth upon which we are about to focus clear and received in the deepest portions of our hearts. And do, O Lord, carry out and answer the request of your dear Son that all your people may be one and may act as one. O Lord, we ask for that which is great and hardly imaginable to us. But we are convinced that we ask for that which is according to your revealed will. And so we ask. Now teach us. And help us, O Lord, to explain the truth as it ought to be explained. And make the talk the difference to be seen in the way we live. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We are preaching a series of sermons on the subject of the Holy Spirit. And we are examining to some degree the idea and the benefits of the gift of the Spirit that God has given to His people. All those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and upon Him alone have received the Spirit of God who has come to dwell in them, to stay with them until they reach heaven. And that gift of God's Spirit we are seeing is of the highest and chiefest and most blessed benefit that a man can imagine. We've listed several of those benefits, and this morning we continue to examine another one. We have seen that the Spirit dwelling with its people gives them comfort in their affliction. We have noted that He provides strength in their weakness and assurance to the doubtful. He also assists us in our prayers and He instructs us in the ways and the works of Christ. He also grants us real access to God and he gives us liberation, or he liberates us from all the bondage that we were subject to in our sins and under the terms of the old covenant which could never deliver us. In the eighth place, the Spirit of God, and this has been a very comforting thing to us and an encouraging thing, provides us the enablement to mortify our sins as we pursue holiness. But in the ninth place, and today, I want us to take up the subject of the Spirit's provision of unity with Christ and with our and His brethren. 
the unity or the uniting of us to Christ and to the brethren. Now this is a deep and a blessed doctrine. But I plan to spend the better part of this time concentrating on the aspect of unity that relates to the brethren. First of all, though, remember with me what the Scripture teaches us regarding unity. And in order to do that, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. The passage we read in John 17 witnesses our Savior just before his crucifixion praying to his Father that the Lord would make all those who would believe upon him, both the apostles and those who would believe through their witness, one. It was our Lord's heartfelt concern that all his people be united to him and to one another. In Ephesians chapter 4, we are told, verse 3, that we are to be giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The concept of unity among the brethren of Christ is seen in the Scripture as the unity of the Spirit. And it is from that phraseology that we take this portion of our consideration of the benefits of the Spirit dwelling amidst us. The Holy Spirit provides and produces unity to Christ and to the brethren. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, the first epistle of John, the first chapter. Verse 3. Having spoken of his face-to-face eyewitness of the Lord Jesus in the flesh, the word of life incarnate, the Apostle John in verse 3 of the first chapter of the first epistle says this, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you also that you also may have fellowship with us. Yea, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. It is the normal experience, the universal experience of everyone who believes in Jesus Christ to be in fellowship with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. Now it is typical of those who are believers in Christ that they walk in the light as he is in the light. And that includes not only that they know the truths of the gospel and believe them, 
but that they walk in the context and in the implication and in the application of them. And those that by walking in the light show evidence that they know the truth of the light are in fellowship one with another. So there's the fellowship with the Father, the fellowship with the Son, and the fellowship one with the other. But it's the unity of the Spirit about which we speak. The Spirit has united us to the Father and to the Son and to one another. Now I want to expound this principle under two headings. First of all, I want us to notice something of the quality of this unity, or this union, may we say. And secondly, the realm of this union and unity with Christ and with his people. The quality and the realm. First of all, the quality of our union with Christ and his people. And essentially, the quality of our union is this. It is a real spiritual unity and fellowship. It is a real spiritual unity and fellowship. The word that's used frequently in the New Testament to describe this experience of unity is the word koinonia. That word means intimate bonding. It means that we are partakers of a common mind and common blessing. Koinonia, fellowship, is where it's most often translated. We're in fellowship with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. We are in an intimate bond. We have, as it were, become part of God and one another in such a union that it cannot be broken. This is more, brethren, than organized identity. I'm a member of Albany Baptist Church. I belong to the Kiwanis or to the Lions Club. This is more than joining ourselves to a group of people by signing our names to the dotted line and calling therefore ourselves members of an organization. You have not fellowship with God and with his people and you're not experiencing real spiritual union with them if all you have is the title of church member. If all you've done is join up with an organization called the church and are known on your resume as being a member of the church, that is not spiritual, real unity and fellowship. It's more than voluntary agreement. It's not simply that you have decided that you like some of the things they believe in and stand for and would like to pursue those things with them. It's more than that. It's more than frequent social gatherings. There are many people that talk about having fellowship. I grew up in a context of a denomination in which the churches often had what they called fellowships. And that meant they got together for meetings. They would have a chili supper, a hot dog roast, uh, a picnic, uh, 
popcorn, peanuts, uh, pizza, and they would call them fellowship. One of the problems was, though, that very often in those churches, when the people of the church got together for those so-called fellowships, there was not the picture of New Testament fellowship. There were factions, there were party spirits, there were groups divvying up into their own favorite cliques, and there was not the sense of a oneness one with the other. What they called fellowship was not what the New Testament means by the word. What it means is more than social, social gatherings. I remember one time somebody asked in the early years of our church why we didn't have more fellowships. And I said, probably because we don't have much fellowship. You tend to grow out of fellowship into an increased desire to be together. And you see a church that's growing normally, having more desire and providing more opportunities for the brethren to get together in informal settings because it grows out of a heart of unity. But where it doesn't grow out of a heart of unity, but it's brought down on the head of the church by organized and planned socials, you can create great disasters by forcing a forced or out or external fellowship on the people of God where this real spiritual unity does not exist. What we're speaking of is an actual, vital, supernatural communion. A real, actual, vital, supernatural communion. Dear brethren, that's what fellowship in the Spirit is. That's what the unity of the Spirit is. Attendance at the meetings is not sufficient. Being present here with your body at every meeting of the church does not in itself constitute being in fellowship with the church. Now certainly, being absent from the meetings of the church militates against this unity and fellowship, but even if you're present, that in itself does not mean that you are one with Christ and with his people. There are many, I fear, who are content to show up, maybe barely on time, to leave maybe the first out, and think they have met the standards of Christ, and who go their way and live their lives without ever experiencing New Testament fellowship. Brethren, this quality of fellowship and unity is real. It is spiritual. It is deep. It is actual and vital. It is supernatural. It is a thing of God himself, the Spirit. If you'll turn back with me to the passage we read in Philippians chapter 2, I want you to look at some of the aspects of this fellowship. The quality of this unity of the Spirit has several aspects to it. First of all, in verse 1, there's, there's a fellowship or unity of the very soul. If there is therefore any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, 
if any tender mercies and compassion. The apostle expects that in a church where there's spiritual, vital unity, there will be one to the other a concept and an attitude of tender mercies and compassion. Not toleration alone. Not mere living around or near each other and bumping into one another once in a while and being giving the cordial greeting, but from the heart, from the bowels of mercy, tender, compassion, fellowship of the Spirit, consolation or persuasion of love. The soul itself finds its way into this unity. And where that's missing, the fellowship of the Spirit is missing. The unity of the Spirit is missing. The quality of this unity is such that it gets to the very soul of those with whom it has to do. In the second place, there's a unity of vision that is shared by those who are one in Christ. And we'll come back to Philippians 2, but in order to show you this visionary unity, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, verse 2, and follow. They're in the church in Antioch. Now this is an unusual church in that it had several prophets and teachers among them Barnabas and Simeon called Negus and Lucius of Cyrene and Manian, the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, later known as Paul. And in verse 2 it tells us that as they, these prophets and teachers, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth, notice, by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John, John Mark, as their attendant. And then it describes how they carried this ministry on abroad, planting churches through the ministration of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, later to return to Antioch to report their experience to the glory of God and the rejoicing of the church. Now, why did we use that text? Because it's a good example of a unity of vision in a church. Lots of prophets, lots of teachers, Different men with different gifts and different insights, one vision together, promoted and produced by the Holy Spirit, so that as one, they sent two men away from them to do a work someplace else that did not have, in some minds perhaps, direct bearing on the success of their own church. In fact, they were giving up some of their own gifts to the larger concerns of Christ's cause in the earth. But they did it as one. They sent them out, and it says that the Holy Spirit is the one that sent them. That's the unity of the Spirit as to vision. They shared the common vision brought to them by the Holy Spirit in them. Now, someone may ask, Pastor, 
What if we don't have the experience in our church of the Holy Spirit saying to a group of men, apparently, in a direct revelatory way, do this and do that? How do we come together on purpose? And how do we share a common vision? Well, I would suggest to you, brethren, that you would not do it very well if you do not have a basic trust of your leaders. I would say that if you want to approach this kind of unity of vision and you don't trust those who are leading in the church, you are not going to discover the kind of unity about which we in the New Testament speak. In fact, if you'll notice, this was not put to the church for a democratic election. These prophets and teachers, together ministering to the Lord, prayed and fasted and set out Paul and Barnabas to the work for which the Holy Spirit had separated them. Oh, for a communion of vision in the church of Christ. And when you see that unity of vision and that rejoicing together for the privileges of the work of Christ, then you know that the Spirit's at work in this unity. What a dreadful thing to be in churches where the Holy Spirit is so talked about and there are 14 different programs going on and 15 different concepts of what Christianity is and what the church ought to be doing and every man does what's right in his own mind, in his own head, where Sunday school classes are divvied up and several different classes are taught by different adults in a church and one man teaches according to this point, one man goes in this direction and there's no unity. It's one of the reasons that we do meet together in our Sunday school as adults in this place, so that we may preserve and promote that unity of mind. Now, I recognize that in America, that is a drastically scary thing. People believe that it is their right and their incentive under God to make sure they do not submit to one way of thinking. And there are some who believe that if everybody's for it, they ought to be against it just to preserve the principles of democracy. I say to you, that's a false, an arbitrary, and artificial re response. It ought to be true in the church that everybody agree about everything. That's unity. Now, there are times when you can't in good conscience. But your spirit ought to be striving for that. And it ought to be in the context of trust of those that God has put over you in the Lord. Then turn to Acts chapter 14. Verse 26 and following. This is when they returned. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went to Atalia. And in verse 26, thence they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been committed to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all things that God had done with them and that he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they tarried no little time with the disciples. They went back. They gathered the whole church together, and the impression is the whole church came, they reported the results, the whole church welcomed the report, and the result was a long period of time of these men fellowshipping and ministering in the context of the Antioch church, everybody rejoicing at how God had used their shared vision and given it fruit. 
But then turn back with me to Philippians 2 for the third aspect of the quality of the unity of spirit that we talk about. Chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 3 and 4. And this is on the very surface of biblical unity, a unity of love. Verse 2 says, being of one accord of one mind, having the same love. Verse 3 says, doing nothing through faction or through vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself. Not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. The unity of love. And what does the unity of love assume? It assumes that you will do nothing that is designed to promote a dividing up of brethren, a superiority among some versus an inferiority among others. In other words, through faction or vain glory. Your motive is to be important. You have glory of yourself in mind, and so you promote yourself and your cause by means of separating brethren through gossip or slander or innuendo or body language or whatever, and you militate against the unity of the Spirit as it impinges on love. Love shows itself in lowliness of mind not in puffing up, not in my way first, not in I have an idea. When am I going to get my chance? Why don't you ever ask me my opinion? But in lowliness of mind, not considering that you are better than others, but counting others better than yourself. Somebody might respond, well, Pastor, hard to do that when it isn't true. There are those that literally have that problem. They're so hung up at this, they can't imagine being able to count somebody better than themselves because they know there's nobody better than themselves. And they don't want to be hypocritical about it. I submit to you, brethren, if that's your spirit, it shouldn't be very difficult for you if you could see it from God's perspective to count others better than yourself because you're at the bottom of the list if you have that view. I trust you don't. Each, each, Counting other better than himself. It doesn't have to be an accurate assessment. God will decide who's really better, but your spirit ought to be the other guy's better. Count him better. Act as though he's better. Treat him as though he's better. Each. No exceptions. And then in verse 4, a further elaboration of this concept of love, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. Now, he's not suggesting that you never take care of your own needs or that you never seek to meet your own needs, but you ought to have that all balanced and tempered with looking out for the needs of others, as we've suggested in recent days. There's nothing that militates more against unity in the Spirit than the attitude that I'm not getting what I want in this church. Sometimes you need to back off and ask, what are other people getting in this church? Sometimes people are so narrow in their perspective regarding themselves that they sit and look at the pulpit and they say, when are you going to speak to my need? 
and they may have no conception about the people sitting around them and the fact that the pastor knows those people sitting around them and that the Spirit of God has shut him up to what he's doing for the sake of very real needs. And to walk out in that context and say, boy, you miss me, that may not be the issue that week. Maybe God had no particular reason to speak directly to you. Maybe the concern was overriding in another area. And you should have given yourself to imagine and consider that. Put, your, put other people's needs out in front. Think of the other. Think of what else others need. Brethren, the goal of a church is for every member to be serving, giving, promoting the spiritual welfare of the other. That's the goal. Everyone. There's no exception to that. If you are content to sit on the fringe, to take in, to take in, to take in, and never to give out, you are not walking in the path of Christian unity, and therefore there's a question about the degree of the Spirit's work in you. Because when the Holy Spirit does His work, He produces a unity of love, expressed in putting oneself under others and seeking the good of the other as well as myself. But then also there's a unity of purpose. Verse 2. Make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. What are we here for? What is our goal here? It is not to titillate your flesh. It is not to entertain you. It is not to satisfy your own narrow perspective of your perceived emotional needs. Our goal together here is to glorify God through the obedience and observance of all of his revealed ordinances in the preaching of Christ and the promoting of the salvation of sinners and the building up of his church. That's it. And when you get baptized with that kind of mentality, a lot of your gripes disappear. People can step all over your toes in a church and it doesn't bother you if you get that goal and that purpose settled in your mind. What difference did it make if somebody didn't treat you the way you wanted? Brethren, again I appeal to you. Don't come to the church of Christ putting yourself in a position in which you're testing the brethren to see if they love you. Don't plop yourself down in the seat and say, I'm going to see who's going to come and speak to me. If you're doing that, you're sinning against Christ. That attitude is not of love. That's self-centered. You're, putting, you're tempting God, and not unusually, God will accommodate you. And he'll provide you a lonely seat in the church. You know why? Not because there aren't people that notice you and care about you, but they read you. And they, you're telling them, bug off. And so they bug off because they're gentle and tender. And they don't want to put you away. They want to shove you. We have a church here that I've observed over the years is very careful and very tender and not pushy. In fact, it's so that way that we've had to appeal to the brethren over the years to be a bit more aggressive in showing people that you notice they're here. But one of the things that have been interpreted as being that you know, nobody in this church cares in times past. Well, that's not the case. In many cases, folks said, well, this person appears that he's uncomfortable when somebody walks up to him and makes it over him, so I'm going to give him a little space here and then have that person go home and call a pastor and say, they're not friendly in this church. 
I've had people that have visited here for six months and have not stepped out of their spot have come in late after it was too late was for people to greet, gone out early when nobody could get to them, and then call me and say, why isn't anybody friendly in this place? And I asked the question, when did you put yourself in a place where they could be? And so there's this testing that's done. Brethren, that's not the unity of purpose. You're not sharing in the purpose of the church. The church is not here to make you feel wanted. The church is here to have you serve Christ in his kingdom and deny yourself. That's what we are as a church. Let's cultivate that quality of the unity of the Spirit, as I would command that most of you have done and are doing. And I thank God for you. But then there's a second aspect of this whole doctrine of the unity of the brethren in Christ that I want to examine. We've looked briefly at the quality of this unity, but let's look at the realm of the unity. I'll state it this way. Spiritual unity and true biblical fellowship is never based on anything other than gospel truth. Spiritual unity and true fellowship is never based on anything other than gospel truth. The spirit of unity is also the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will lead you into all truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, that they may be one. Now let's look at this whole chapter, uh, first half of this chapter of Philippians chapter 2. The first 16 verses. You're very familiar with the section between verse 5 and verse 11. Regarding our Lord's example, which was certainly more than an example, but it is an example held up to us that we are to have this mind in us that was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in a place where he had rights to be worshipped, he put himself in a humble set. He came down and condescended, and he emptied himself and became of no reputation. We are to be like that. You are familiar with that section of Scripture. But notice in verse 16, having urged the church to have this lowly mind of Christ and its communion one with another, having begged of them to do this. Now, it might be helpful for you to know, over in chapter 4, verse 2, he's exhorting the person apparently to whom this letter is being delivered. He says, I exhort Iodia and I exhort Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yea, I beseech you also, true yoke fellow, help these women, for they labored with me in the gospel etc. Apparently there's a problem in the church and it's illustrated in these two women that are not working together well. Maybe they're competing. Maybe each of them has a sort of a, a subsidiary, auxiliary, a diaconal ministry and one wants hers to be seen more than the other. In some churches, um, it's been a long time since I got to sing the solo. Why does she always get to sing the solo? They've got this whole mentality of operatic aria on the mind in these churches. And they've got bickering happening. They start fighting for position in choirs and all sorts of things. Well, he appeals to this. And see, this is on his mind, I believe, even in chapter 2, as he's appealing to them to think the same things, to be of one mind. And he's building this case. And then, in verse 16, he says, Holding forth the word of life, 
that I may have whereof to glory in the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain, neither labor in vain. You see, the overarching canopy and context within which all love and oneness in the church occurs is the truth as it is in Jesus, holding forth the word of life. In verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you are seen as lights in the world. What are you to be doing? Why do we need so desperately this oneness of mind whereby you lay aside your selfish interest and promote the eternal purpose of the whole church, yourself taking a back seat? Why? Because it's in that context of unity that you are seen as light in the world. And you are the purpose of all that unity is that you may hold forth the word of life. The goal is that the world believe the gospel. That they may know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. That they may know that thou didst send me. Make them one. There's a testimony that's at stake in the unity of mind, of soul, of vision, of love, of purpose in a church. Brethren, it's better to sacrifice your own conviction about what ought to be done in a program in the church if what's being done doesn't violate Scripture for the sake of unity than to insist that you be heard for democracy's sake. Now you heard clearly. I said, if the program doesn't violate Scripture, I am not attempting to bind your conscience against the Word of God. But I tell you, there's nothing more difficult to deal with than one person who's got a plan, got an idea, and can't wait to get it implemented, and the elders keep frustrating him because they just don't judge that his plan is where they are yet. He doesn't normally assume that they've thought through this and prayed through it and that they know anything about it. He just knows that what he's got going, the church needs. Brethren, let that not be your spirit. It's in the context of truth. Now look at chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 7. Here's the Apostle Paul in this appeal for unity of heart, saying, Howbeit what things were gained to me, these have I counted loss for Christ. Yea, verily, and I count all things to be loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but refuse, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of mine own, even that which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed unto his death. Now then look at verse 17. Brethren, be you imitators together of me. He's been describing what he's done. He gave up his honors as a Jew. All the advantages he had as a Jew, they're worthless to him. He's considered them as refuse, as dung, 
because the excellency of Christ and the knowledge of Christ makes those things as garbage in comparison. And he thrown it all away and he was really, he was high up in the Jewish religion. He was well respected. He was noted as a servant of God in their eyes. It's all down the tubes. Why? Because to know Christ surpasses all that and I couldn't have both. But in verse 17, be ye imitators of me. And look at this. Mark them that so walk even as you have us for an example. For many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You see what the issue is? It's the cross of Christ. He can't go very far without going back to the truth of the gospel. The cross of Christ whose end is perdition, whose God is the belly, whose glory is in their shame, who might for our citizenship is in heaven, whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. Your dear brethren, he's speaking of some who proclaim themselves to be Christians. You just read the religion page on Saturday of any local newspaper. And look at the brands of Christianity there are. I'm talking about the, the inane, empty claims of Christian faith that have no gospel, no cross, no Savior, no reference to sin and the need for redemption. Great flowing words that appeal to men without dealing with the root problem. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. That's where we measure them. Where, what is their relationship to and attitude about the cross of Christ? The Apostle Paul gloried in nothing but the cross by whom he was crucified to the world. Dear brethren, you will not be a friend of the majority of this religious world if you hold to the cross of Christ biblically. You will lose that world. They will hate you condescend, look down on you, patronize you at best. And if they can, they'll eliminate you. The cross is a stumbling block to the wise of this world. It's foolishness to them. They want to rid the church of this superstitious religion, as they say. And we're not speaking of a little gold cross hung around the neck or a little emblem of worship sitting on the top of a church. We're talking about the one on whom our Lord died for our sins. Now then look at chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, just, pure, lovely, good report, and on and on. He starts out with this appeal for this sweetened spirit among the brethren, whatsoever things are true. And then you're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, that says, Love rejoices in the truth. That's where love rejoices. Somebody said, Pastor, you can't have unity without love. And every time you start injecting truths, doctrines into the thing, you divide people. The thing to do is eliminate some of the offensive doctrines 
and minimize them to the lowest common denominator or dilute them enough that you don't use terminology that would bring offense so that for love's sake we can be one. That is essentially the message of the ecumenical movement. Love one another. They take the prayers of Jesus. I heard the I heard one of them on the radio the other day saying, Jesus prayed that we may be one. How can we be one if we keep accenting our differences? Well, brethren, his differences meant the unfallibility of the Word of God, the uniqueness of the atoning work of Christ, its sufficiency, its necessity. Those are things he's thrown down his theological tubes. And he's saying, please, if you fellows will quit preaching that stuff, we can all work together. For what? The common purpose of unity is to glorify God and His Son, whom He sent to die for us. And brethren, not unity around a social cause in this world. Their God is their belly. They mind earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we wait for a Savior. That doesn't mean we're not involved in the world, but it means our goal and the focus of our ministry is something most of the world cannot comprehend. A simple preaching of Christ. Telling men they're sinners. Calling them to repentance. Spiritual conversion. Salvation. They will become salt and light and have a great unifying effect in many aspects of the world, but ultimately a sword will have been drawn They'll be a minority. They'll be separated out. People think of them as weird, as ignorant, as cultists, but they love Christ. And He will come to those who wait for Him. He'll appear without sin to salvation. That's what our hope is in. We don't rally around the new movements of liberation theology, not liberation from sin that we saw in the and the provision of the Spirit in liberating us from our bondage, but liberation from government, liberation from authority, liberation from limits on our, on our expression. Brethren, we're in a culture that says you have the right because of the freedom of expression to publish to children pornography. But you do not have that same right to put up a crash scene. Because it's a religious symbol. Where did a logic go? I don't want to promote my religion forcefully with taxpayers' dollars. I don't do so. However, don't tell me that the freedom of expression grants the right to pervert a culture and not the right to enlighten it. Don't spend my money to kill the babies and then spend my money to kill those or to offend those who don't want that done. Don't do that. It's not right. Love rejoices in the truth. Don't appeal to unity if the truth isn't at the root of it. In 1 John 5, do not turn there, but in chapter 5, we love God, we love His children, and here is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. This unity is not a nebulous unity that has no moral stricture, that has no doctrinal directives and parameters. It's a unity within the context of truth, doctrinal and ethical. It's not any other unity. It's not the unity of the spirit of truth and the spirit of holiness if it doesn't have those things. You're not Christianly unified. If you're unified on any other basis, 
and the truth. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, that we may summarize this principle. There could be no clearer text in all the Word of God. And brethren, it's text like this, that make the men who are propagating the kind of false unity that we're speaking of get rid of their Bibles as infallible. They can't stand every word in the Bible to be of God because it, they can't argue with that. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 4. Look at this. There is one body. Well, they, they agree with us. There's one body. We should break down these denominational barriers. Well, let's look further. One spirit. They'd rather not even discuss that because they, they don't know what that means. Even as you also were called in one hope of your calling. And that has something to do with Philippians chapter uh, 3. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we wait for a Savior. Our hope is not in this world. One Lord. And that means one head of the church, not two heads. It doesn't mean a man. It means Christ. There's only one head of the church. And it's Christ. There's only one Lord, it's Jesus. No man comes to the Father but by him. He's the Lord of our faith. Only he can save. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can't get to God any other way. You can't unify Christians by putting Christ as one option. This whole concept of the, you know, the council or the fellowship or the dialogue between Christians and Jews as an integrated, ongoing relationship... Brethren, that's not our goal in this world. Our responsibility is to do what the Lord Jesus, what John the Baptist, what the apostles did and preach the gospel to the Jew. It doesn't say that the power of a, a man-imposed unity comes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It says the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the claims of the gospel require that Jews turn to Christ. And when men preach that, the Jews get mad. And they stop their ears and they say, this should not be allowed. They tried to stop the Jews for Jesus in New York City. And though I wouldn't support everything they do in their methods, I would support their right to hand out a tract to a Jew that says, Jesus is your Messiah. And I would hope they would read it. No, no, these people are forcing their religion upon us. And it is interesting that the recent Supreme Court decision was able to differentiate between secular things and religious things in the menorah and the crash theme and their interpretation of promotion of religion. And I thought that there were secular elements in the crash theme. I thought that donkeys and lambs and hay and barns and stars and moons and people and babies, I thought those, I didn't know those were expressly religious. And I didn't know that the Jews who celebrate the festival of lights and the menorah uh, because of their liberation from Rome in AD 163 were totally irreligious. But our Supreme Court has defined things in certain terms that give me a sense that there's a mindset in our country against any intrusion of the gospel into the conscience. One faith, not many faiths, organizing as one, one faith, one set of doctrinal truths, one line of thought, one salvation, one baptism. 
Let me make a suggestion to you. A second baptism doctrine. A baptism of the Holy Spirit subsequent to the first one does not promote Christian unity. It destroys it. I didn't see that till I started studying this. I saw that what's happening. You need to have the second baptism. And it puts you as a second class Christian if you haven't and it divides. Why does it divide? It always has in history. Why does it? Because there's one baptism. You can't have two. And in the face of Scripture, the effort to impose a second baptism destroys the very essence of the text itself. There is no unity if there's only if there are two baptisms. The imposition of the second one has already eradicated the unity. That's why it always shows up that way and divides up Christians. One Lord, one God and Father of us all. Now, isn't that interesting? One God. And he doesn't have several names. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the God of Muhammad. He is the Father of us all. Us all referring to the people to whom the Apostle directed his comment in the second chapter of Ephesians when he said, You used to walk this way, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, but now... You walk a different way. You are zealous for good works. God has ordained that you walk in them. What made the difference? By grace you have been saved through Christ. God is the Father of all those who have come to Him in Christ. There's where the unity is. The unity is in Christian confession of faith in the Lord Jesus and in Christian transformation of life. That's where the unity is. In the truth. Believed with the mind. Practiced with the heart. You can't have unity apart from that. Well, let me make some application. I think there's one very heavy application that needs to be made. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, gives us a directive. And I want you to notice the context of this directive. Verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away falsehood, speak you truth, each one with his neighbor. Why? What is the theological basis for needing to speak truth one to another? And he's speaking in the context of the church. For we are members one of another. That's the reason we must speak truth one with the other. He goes on. Because we're members one of another, be angry and sin not. Hate the sin. Let your anger be de devoted to ridding yourself of the sin. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Because that's what happens when you, let, when you go to sleep mad at a brother or your wife or your husband and you don't deal with it. The devil has a foot in the door. When you let it go a couple of days or a week, the devil will come in and bother you. And I'll tell you what I've watched him do. I've watched people who were morally upright, ethically clean, retain bitterness against a brother, refusing to put it right. And I've watched the Holy Spirit eventually pervert their doctrine, turn them away from truths they used to be convinced of, and send them down the tubes of apostasy. 
You give place to the devil when you let the sun go down on your wrath. That means keep short accounts. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that's good, that he may have whereof to give to him that's in need. Let no corrupt speech proceed out of your mouth, but such as is good for edifying, as the need may be, that it may give grace to them that hear, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed under the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and railing be put away from you with all malice, and be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. Let me expound this in application. There is the, the crying need in the Church of Christ for transparency among the brethren. And it's a transparency that is built upon the foundation of love, of mutual union, and of mercy. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. How can you do that when you don't trust each other? How can you confess your faults in a, in a context in which the others aren't merciful? And, you, and as soon as you confess, they say, oh, really? In which they've got their little spiritual noses so up that they don't remember they ever committed such sin. How can you come to a brother or a sister and say, pray for me, I'm struggling with an area of temptation, and confide? Now, we're not speaking of standing up in the public and telling us, uh, airing out all your dirty laundry in front of all of us. That is not appropriate. That's not orderly. That's not decent. But we are speaking of an atmosphere of mutual transparency in the church, not where brethren withdraw from brethren, not where brethren keep the minimum information uh, to us, not where brethren are so afraid we're going to find out what they do in the privacy of their homes that we're going to learn the facts, not where there's this sense that if I trust anybody, he's going to use it on me, but in a mutual context of love and union and mercy, a transparency. Lie not one to another, speak the truth, each one with his neighbor. Why? Because of the unity of the Spirit. And if you notice in the heart of this exposition, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Because that's the result. That's what you're doing when you're not living in this transparency of mutual trust, sharing of goods, See here, the guy used to be a liar. Now he's to tell the truth. Why? Because we're one with another. He used to be a thief. He used to be a taker. Now he's a giver. Why? Because we're one members one of another. He works laboriously that he may give to others in the church that have need. There's this compatibility of sharing and mutual giving from a voluntary heart of unity. And that kind of open transparency and sharing of life and goods using speech to edify, not letting something come out of my mouth that grieves and hurts, that puts down, that confuses, but working against that tendency as the need may be to minister grace to the hearer, all in the context of the danger of grieving the Holy Spirit of God. But then verse 31 tells us to let all bitterness, and he lists these things, and I want you to hear what they mean. Bitterness. 
It means to have a wicked disposition. To have a sour spirit. You can't enjoy anything or anybody very much because you, you're in bondage to your bitter heart. Let it be done with. Let it be done with. Away from you. Put it away from you. Bitter spirit. You interpret everything pessimistically, negatively. Somebody rejoices and you look to see what is, what's wrong with him. Somebody lifts his eyes to God and singing and you're watching him and you're jealous because you can't do it and you try to figure out a reason why he shouldn't do it. That's a wicked disposition. Let it get rid of it. Your members one with us. The next word is wrath. This is the overboiling, bubbling up of instantaneous outgushing of anger and then retreat, receding. Retreat, it's, it's anger that piles up and overflows and bursts out and then backs up. And it bursts out and backs up. It's the impulse of uncontrolled passion and anger. That's what this word means. Get rid of it. With your wife, with your husband, with your children, with the church. Let it not occur. Put it away from you. Then he says anger. What's the difference between wrath and anger? This word is settled opposition against another. It's the difference between wrath. Wrath is the word that means boiling over, means blowing your top and then backing up. Maybe say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't. I'm sorry, I didn't. Blowing your top three days later. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Blowing your top. Get rid of that. Get rid of it with your babies. Get rid of it with your grandfathers. Get rid of it with your brethren. But anger here means that settled, committed, state of opposition in which you just live in perpetual opposition to brethren. Get rid, get rid of it. And then clamor. You know what that word means? Kroge. From which we got the word crow. It was a Greek word applied to ravens when they made their sound. It means shut up your yelling and your screaming at each other. And this is not talking about public oratory. This is talking about flying off the handle and as anger against God's people, you scream. Get rid of it. You're crowing. Nothing much more irritating than crows flying around the house when we've been listening to all kinds of songbirds and we have lots out where we live and we love to listen to the crows come out. The grackles do the same thing to my ear. They don't settle well on my ear. I would get out of here and let us listen to the mockingbird. Get rid of your clamor. Use of your tongue to yell out because you're angry. Railing, that word means blasphemy. Impious speech. Reproachful speech. Get rid of it. And then malice. With all malice. And this word means a vicious disposition where you really desire the hurt of another person. Put it away from you because we're members one of another. Brethren, the way to cultivate or at least one central way of cultivating the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is by mortification of these sins of the Spirit 
that are representative of a lack of self-control in us and that show that we don't love each other. Put it away from you. If you have it in your marriage, let me apply it to this point. If you're at one with the brethren in your church, are you not one with your bride or your husband? How can you express that union in marriage with these this list of behavior that he is condemning and saying get rid of brethren don't let it ever happen again in your house that you raise your voice in anger against your spouse stop it today repent now with your children covenant together get your heart right go confess it to your spouse and your children humble yourselves temperamental man stop that behavior if you're doing it at any time among brethren Put it away from yourself. Cultivate the unity of the Spirit. The degree of our expressed unity is measured in this context of honesty one with another. Keep short accounts. Don't let something stew. Either drop it or straighten it out with the brother. Share in needed goods by energetic labor. Cultivate a climate of edifying speech, especially when we gather on the Lord's Day. You're not finished with that duty as soon as you walk out that door. Walk out that door thinking of the spiritual shape and condition of the person to whom you're speaking and be careful what you say. And I would suggest and appeal as a pastor that you be cautious what you say to your pastor on the way out the door. I'm not always sinless about this and what I say to you. But brethren, that foyer is not a place for a parting shot. You're fighting your own soul when you do that. I've got shoulders broad enough to deal with it, but God help you not to do that. Have the courage, privately, graciously, the way you want me to act toward you, come to me. That's not the place where people are lined up behind you for you put me straight. And I'm not the only one. Pastors have this experience frequently around the world where people don't want to be brethren. They want the pastor to show that example. They don't want to follow that example. Brethren, have enough love for the unity of the church that you be careful and edify when you speak. Grieve not the Spirit by all these matters that the Apostle deals with. Well, one last word to you who are unsaved. There's one sure evidence that you're not a Christian. There are a lot of others, but there's one that is sure it is exemplified in your disfellowship with the Church of Christ. And I'm not speaking that if you're not currently a member of a local church, that proves you're not saved. There are situations that make that an exceptional situation. But I'm saying that if in your heart of hearts you don't love the brethren, you don't love Christians, you don't desire to be a part of them, there's nothing in you that's appe- that, 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 that is appealed to by that in quest of a church to come and join with them. And you have no thought of that and you're living your life outside the church of Christ. And that's a good evidence that the Spirit of God does not dwell in you because wherein He dwells, there's a desire and hunger for fellowship with the people of God because the ones in whom He dwells have been made in fellowship with God and are in fellowship one with another. It needs to be cultivated, improved, increased. But if there's none of that in you, You need to repent of your sin. 
You need to have fellowship with Christ by believing upon him and the forgiveness of your sins. And you need to join with the brethren and be one with the brethren who love Christ and believe in him. One last word of application to the church. We have rules for membership. Among five rules that we state when you join our church. One, it is that you must attend all the stated meetings of the church except when providentially hindered. There are other times the church meets we don't have stated meetings. Well, let me appeal to you to approach this thing not from a pharisaical and legalistic perspective, but from a heart of a Christian. It's not that if you've met the requirements of coming to all the stated meetings that now you meet the requirements of the Church of Christ. That's not the case. Unless your heart is one with us, you've not met the requirement. And it's costing you and it's costing the church. And it's hurting the cause of Christ. And it will do bad with you on the day of judgment. Don't be satisfied with the minimum. What do they require in this church? Brethren, you're missing the point if that's all you're content with. Be not satisfied until you know the heart of your brethren, till you have them in your home, till you get into their homes, till you spread out the love of the brethren, copy those that are most loquacious in fellowship, and be with them. Don't be content. You say, well, I didn't know the church had a rule. The church has a rule that you love one another. The church has a rule that you delight in one another. The church can't make that happen by forcing it. But I appeal to you as a brother and a pastor, don't be content with just bare acknowledgement of our existence. Dive into our lives. Get to know us and let us get to know you. Get the chip off your shoulder. Get the chip off your shoulder. Humble yourself. One of the reasons you're not growing in other aspects of your faith, your Bible is a dead book to you. Your prayers can't bounce off, can't get past your ceiling, is because you've resisted the unity of the Spirit as it expresses itself with brethren. Brethren, it's some, for some of us, it's tough to overcome, but God's Spirit will honor your request to enter into the fuller fellowship of God's people and kingdom. Do not be content with just showing up and keeping your name on the books. You're missing the point, if that's all there is. May we pray together. Our Father, we would pray that you would use these exhortations and these warnings and these encouragements to the hearts of true people and that they may be used to convince the heart of any who do not belong to Christ that there's a great need. But our Father, we would pray for any among us who are strangers to the grace of our Lord Jesus that you may show them that he throughout the scripture is set forth as the hope of the world and that in him and him alone is their hope of salvation. Lord, impart faith, save sinners, and make us one in every way in the heart in truth, and help us to grow in our willing transparency and mutual healing of one another. Our Father, we ask you as a church that you'd forgive us for our shortcomings here, and that you would heal the breaches and cure the distrusts and any element among us that is resistant of sweet fellowship in Christ and his people. O oh Lord the Spirit, do your work in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.